um, to get this across really need the Lord's help. So we're trusting that the heart of the Lord would come through this in spite of the, the messenger. In Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, and then at the end of that chapter, verses 34 to 38, in the construction of the tabernacle of Moses. This chapter begins by speaking about a piece of furniture that's called the golden altar of incense. The golden altar of incense. That's how the chapter opens up. And the end of the chapter talks about a description of the incense that must be burned at that golden altar. Description of the the altar itself and then a description of the incense that must be burned upon that altar. In the tabernacle of Moses, if you're familiar with it, you would understand that this piece of furniture, this golden altar of incense, is the last item that the priest would get to until he's at the veil, because it sits right in front of the veil, and that veil separates from the Holy of Holies. And that golden altar of incense is the last piece of furniture before you can get to the Holy of Holies. And under the Old Testament law, beyond the veil, no one could go. Nobody was allowed beyond that veil. And if you were to get through that veil, you would know that there is in that place called the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the place where God himself dwells. But in the Old Testament, nobody's allowed to go in there. That veil in separates the holy place from the holy of holies. The only exception is once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, not just any priest, but the high priest, would be able to go into that holy of holies and make atonement for the nation. Very highly ritualized event done, and I emphasize, with the utmost care and preparation. If not, he will perish in the process of going into there In other words, approaching God is not a trivial and it's not a light-hearted matter at all. It's serious business. So how does a priest arrive at this golden altar of incense in the tabernacle of the wilderness, the Old Testament tabernacle? If I could draw a few mental pictures for you of what you would encounter if you would live there. You would have to go in the east side through a gate, a linen gate. It's colored with purple and blue and scarlet. It's a white fence all the way around the courtyard, but the gate itself is blue, scarlet, and it is purple. And you could go through the gate into the outer courtyard, and that was as far as the regular, normal Israelite could go. That's it. Any further than that, you had to be a priest. That's as far as you would go. Once you're inside that enclosure, this gateway, you are immediately confronted with a flaming altar known as the brazen altar. It was situated square to the gate through which you came, and on that altar was meant for sacrifice. Their sacrifice was made for sin with the shedding of blood. To come into the place of participating in worship, which we get to when we get to that golden altar, to come into the place of participating in worship, which is the goal, this is the route. You have to enter the gate and you have to go by that brazen altar where sacrifice has been made. People may witness the cloud and the fire from a distance. But if you're going to draw nigh, this is the route to which you have to come. The reason we come this way is because we have to go to that brazen altar first for the remission of our sins. But this is important. But our response to it is worship. Amen? 
We go there for the remission of sins, but our response is to worship. You know well, Psalm 100 and verse 4, you enter His gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. And that's the way we come in. With the remission of sins, our response to that altar is to worship. And I'll make this statement, and it'll be made a few times tonight. If our reaction and if our response is not gratitude and worship. I repeat, if our response is not gratitude and is not worship, then the tabernacle of Moses will teach me this. None of our actions or no ministry that we undertake will have any value. That's a strong statement. But if we can't minister out of gratitude, it doesn't count with God. Gratitude has to be the motivation. Once we pass that brazen altar, then the priests could move forward. And the next piece of furniture, if you call it that, would be a laver. And that laver was, interesting enough, fashioned entirely out of highly polished brass mirrors. It reflects everything around it. On the one side, you look at that and reflect in the brazen altar. If you were to go on the other side, it would reflect the holy place that you had not yet got into. But it is the laver there. And before you could enter into that tent, before you could enter into that part called the holy place, the priest must first wash at that laver before entering in. If they didn't, he would perish. And that teaches us that back at the brazen altar, the blood has cleansed us from our sins. But at that laver, we have to be cleansed. And that's by the ministry of the Word. And through the ministry of the Word, we are continuously being cleansed from defilement. And we have to be cleansed from the pollution in order to come into His presence. Amen? And it takes the ministry of the Word to do that continually. And then after the priest would wash himself at that labor and refresh himself, he would go through another screen, which is also blue, purple, and scarlet. And that woven linen screen act as the gate or the door into this place called the holy place. Once you pass through that, and no common Israelite was allowed, only the priest was allowed in there, and once you pass through that, that door of purple and scarlet and, and the blue color, then if you look straight ahead of you, you would see the veil. That veil is what separates the holy place from the holy of holies. But right in front of the veil, right up beside it, in front of that veil, is this golden altar of incense. That's where it is. That's where it is located. That veil has got pictures of cherubim stitched into it and so forth. But before you get there, on your left side would be the golden candlestick or the lampstand. That provides the only light that's inside the holy place. There's no other light there. That is, the, the, the lampstand with its burning oil represents the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It represents the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. It represents the power of the Spirit. It represents the illumination, the revelation that the Holy Spirit gives. And the, the, one of the great lessons is this. Outside the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you can see nothing. Sorry, but I'm Pentecostal. Outside of the presence and the operation of the Holy Spirit in His fullness, we can say nothing and we can do nothing. And that lampstand represents the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You look over to your right side and there's another piece of furniture that's called the table of showbread. That speaks of our fellowship with God in His presence. The table of showbread is the place where God communes with us. Sometimes it's referred to as the bread of His presence. His presence, like radiating energy, 
God's dwelling behind that veil in the Holy of Holies, but His presence is like radiating energy, and it actually permeates through the veil into the holy place. And on this piece of furniture called the table of showbread, there, were, there would be 12 loaves of bread that would sit there for an entire week. It would sit there. But it's called the bread of His presence. It's because the presence of God would be radiating from the Holy of Holies, radiating through that veil, and those loaves of bread would be soaking up, as it were, the presence of God all week long, being absorbed into its very being, so to speak. Once a week on the Sabbath day, I believe it is, the priests were to go in, and eat those loaves of bread where God and man would come in fellowship together. The cakes belong to God, but they represent us. And as the priest would eat that, it would be the fellowship of God and man together. We've got that far. Now there's one more piece of furniture before we get to that veil, and that is the golden altar of incense. And it is as far as you're allowed to go. Nobody can go beyond that veil. That altar is right in front of the veil. On the other side of the veil is the Ark of the Covenant. On the other side of that veil is the mercy seat. On the other side of that veil is the very presence of God. And this altar is right in front of that veil. And this is as close as you're going to get. Now how many are glad that Jesus has come and done away with the veil? Amen? That Jesus rent that veil and we don't have that issue that we can't go in. But in that Old Testament, that was as far as you could go. And so is there any way that we could penetrate that veil? Is there any way that we could get into that that presence of God? And the answer is, yes, there was. And how did we get there? How did we get in there? What heresy am I about to tell you? You know, how can we experience what's behind that veil? Well, do you remember about the table, the showbread on the right side? Do you remember that? Where we said the presence of God would radiate through that veil. And that bread would soak up the presence, called the bread of His presence. And once a week, they were to eat that bread in the Lord's presence. Well, in this golden altar of incense... We get to offer incense and create smoke and fragrance. And what happens is that fragrance and that smoke permeates the veil into the Holy of Holies. Now listen to this, because this is powerful, powerful stuff. Because in the tabernacle of Moses, there are are two altars. We've already had the brazen altar when you first came in, and then the last item before the veil is a golden altar of incense. Two altars, and never get them confused, and never get them mixed up. Because the brazen altar near the gate of the courtyard, that's all about the needs of man. He has to have his sins forgiven. It's all about the needs of man. But the golden altar of incense is the only, listen carefully, the only piece of furniture in that tabernacle that is for God and God's sake alone. It has nothing to do with the needs of men. Now that's important has nothing to do with the needs of men. Let us not confuse the two altars. The activities of the brazen altar are not to be repeated at the altar of uh, the golden altar of incense. But there is a connection between the two that I will get to. And that connection is there's with the live coals of the fire. There's a connection there to two. But here we got this truth. Incense is to do with the worship of God. Incense is to do with the worship of God. 
You can read in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. You can read in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, that they offered up these golden vials of incense, and they represent the praise and the prayers and the worship of people arising before the Lord. Remember in the Gospel of Luke when Zechariah went in, it was his turn to go into the holy place and, and, and you know do the incense there. The same moment that he was doing that, outside the gate, the people were congregated have a prayer meeting and incense and prayer and then you discover in Psalm 141 verse 2 where David says let the lifting of my hands be as the evening incense and incense is all about worship it's all about praise it's all for God's sake alone that golden altar has nothing to do with the needs of man It's all for God's sake. Now, isn't that wonderful that while you can't go there, you can't get through that veil physically in person, your worship and your praise and the release of the emotions of your heart penetrates beyond the veil and it offers to God a fragrance to the Lord. That golden altar of incense, it is not a place of petition It is a place of praise. It's not a place to beg. It's a place to bless. It's not the place to make entreaty. It's the place to exalt. It is prayer, it is praise, and it is worship to God for God's sake. Alright? It's all for His sake. It's not for our sake. But to get that far has been a very costly thing. To pass through all those pieces of furniture till you get to the place of being able to offer praise and worship to God has indeed been a costly experience. I don't know if you ever tried to find out the financial value of that tabernacle, but it was worth millions, if not billions. I really don't know. It was... The whole thing overlaid with gold. It just can't even begin to imagine. It's costly to approach God. Think of the expenditure. Think of the effort. Did you know that all the pieces of furniture were overlaid with gold? Did you know that? Did you know that that golden candlestick with its seven branches was solid piece of gold? Not overlaying wood. The whole thing was solid piece of gold. One piece of gold that had to be hammered and beaten into shape. Not cut into shape, not different parts put together and soldered together. One piece of gold that had to be beaten into shape. Any idea the worth of that thing can't even begin. Did I tell you about gold hooks? Did I tell you about silver sockets? Did I tell you about the multiple layers made from ram skins, badger skins, the embroidery, the high priest garments, the onyx stones, the oil for the lights, and on and on and on it goes. It is an expensive thing. Costly to make that approach to God for us. But it's been very costly for you and me too. Because that thing was built out of our offerings. A very costly thing indeed. It's costly in terms of our offerings. And it's costly in terms of our involvement in the construction. And it's costly in terms of the journey that we take through each piece of furniture. There has been the cost of the sacrifice at the brazen altar. There is the cost of examining yourself before the word of God at the labor. There is the cost of dependence upon Holy Spirit for absolutely everything at the golden candlestick. And there is the cost of waiting before God for His fellowship. It is costly. But by the time we reach that golden altar, we are not done with counting the cost. Because the incense that was to be burned is no ordinary incense. Newsflash, You're not going to buy it at a store. You have to create it. You have to create the worship that you bring. You're not going to buy it at a store. It is not available to the public. 
that incense is, is composed of four ingredients, none of them of which are natural to the Sinai Peninsula in which they lived. All four of them had to be exported or imported. None of them. It's a costly thing to prepare that incense. Directions for its creation. You can read about them in Exodus chapter 30. They were very exact. Much preparation is required. And to bring your worship, to bring that incense that will produce the fragrance for the Lord, it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of mental concentration. It's going to take a lot of devotion. And it's going to take a lot of emotion. In other words, it is absolutely impossible to come into God's presence in a haphazard way. Absolutely impossible. That incense has to be created in a certain way. And there's four, four ingredients, we're told in Exodus chapter 30. And I don't even know if I know how to pronounce these words. I tried looking them up in a dictionary and I couldn't find any pronunciation for my satisfaction. But the first ingredient in the King James Bible says estakte, S-T-A-C-T-E, whatever that is. don't know the right way of pronouncing it. But it's likely a gum resin. It's likely a sap. It's likely an oozing substance that drips from a tree after you wound it and you've got to make the tree bleed. Are you catching the cost of worship here? It's something you catch after wounding the tree and you make it bleed. A second one is called the, how do you pronounce this? Onuka or Oniche, I don't know. O-N-Y-C-H-A. Any idea where you find that? You've probably never heard of it, have you? You know any idea where you find that? You find that inside a seashell, inside the trap door of a seashell. And you've got to get it out of there. And you've got to extract it from there. And there's a third element called galbanum. And again, where does that come from? You have to go wound a different type of tree and make it bleed as well. And then the fourth one is called frankincense, which is more familiar to everybody. But again, where do they get this frankincense? Guess what you have to do? You have to slash the bark from specific type of trees, and it has to bleed out until it forms tears. And would harden into tears. None of these things are easy to get. All of them are labor-intensive. And to get the ingredients for worship that is acceptable to God, these things have to be broken from trees and broken from shells. They have to be beaten very fine. Then they have to be blended together so they can be burned on the altar. Letter B, I like that. Broken beaten, blended, and burnt. Broken, beaten, blended, and burnt. And those, that's what it takes to get those four ingredients together to make the sweet-smelling fragrance unto the Lord. When the mixture was burned before the veil, it would produce a cloud, and a fragrance. And then the air would be filled with a sweet aroma. And you would sense, and you'd be able to smell something that is sweet, something that is pure, and something that is holy in the atmosphere. You just know it's in the air. You can smell it in the atmosphere. And here's the amazing part to it, is that fragrance, that cloud, that smoke, that incense being burnt, the fragrance of that aroma would permeate through the veil into the Holy of Holies 
where God enjoyed it. Where he would smell it. And he would have take great pleasure. I like that because that means your prayer and your worship can go where you can't go. Amen. Your prayer and your worship can go where you can't go. And that's even true today in the sense that in this mortal body, until Jesus comes, I just can't physically uh, be taken up into that heavenly realm. But I tell you, I can release my heart in worship and in praise. And it will rise where I physically can't go. Come into the very presence of God Himself. Now, the commands for creating this incense were actually quite strict. You read through that in Exodus 30, it's really quite strict. Newsflash, no substitutes are ever allowed. No substitutes. No counterfeits allowed. Anybody doing so would be cut off from the people of God. This incense cannot be used for anything else at all. If you use this compound for anything else, you were executed. There's a death penalty for using this for other purposes. Read the book. No mass production is allowed. Let's make a whole pile of this stuff. Mass production just to keep the cost down, not down. Not allowed. It's not cheap. It's not easily made. And it takes effort, emotion, and heart to prepare it. Just as the, in the construction of every part of the tabernacle, there had to go a lot of thought, a lot of attention to detail, and a lot of care and emotion goes into it, because every detail has meaning, and it's meant to speak to our souls. And remember, no substitution or shortcuts allowed. Years ago... I watched a movie based upon a true story. Darla and I watched it. I don't know if she remembers the story or not. Back, believe it, 1988. That's how long ago. Quite an old movie. But it was emotionally wrenching to watch this movie. And I'd say you'd have to be a block of wood to watch it without tears. You really would. It's a true story about an 8-year-old boy who contracted AIDS because he received contaminated blood in a transfusion. He ends up with these AIDS. And his family was a religious family. And then they face the agonizing dilemma and struggle to have to prepare their eight-year-old child to pass from this life into the next. Heart-wrenching type of stuff. While the boy is in the process of dying... This family is a close-knit family, and they asked the boy's grandfather, who was a carpenter or a joiner, if he would build his grandson's coffin. Now, how many know that would be hard? To build the coffin. The grandfather reluctantly agreed to do it, but he could only proceed through a pile of tears. And everything he put into that coffin, his expertise, his skill, his design, it was a reflection of his love for his grandson. Everything he did to that coffin told a story. And it evoked a memory that came from his heart. It was the product of a lot of thought, a lot of care, a lot of love, but it came with very deep and cutting emotion. He struggled and he wept as he built it. And obviously, that grandfather's last gift to his grandson was incredibly deeply personal. The true story. And the idea is this, that what you produce with your hands, what God is after, it's got to be the product of your heart. What we do in ministry, whatever we produce with our hands, has got to be the product of our heart. I'll say it again. What we produce with our hands must be the product of our heart. 
And so it was in the construction of that Old Testament tabernacle. Every design, every detail, every socket, every color, every bud that was carved, every flower, every stitch of embroidery, the way it was constructed, the beating of the gold to put into shape, the stretching of the gold, every last detail tells a story. Every last detail tells a story. And that story somehow involves us in the love and in the grace of God. And that tabernacle was to be built out of the gratitude and the brokenness of the hearts of the people. And that's the lesson that the incense is going to teach us about worship. It has to flow out of the brokenness of our hearts before God. You see, as I said earlier, we can't just bring any incense to the Lord. In other words, here's an important principle. We are not to worship the Lord with that which has cost us nothing. We are not to worship the Lord with that which has cost us nothing. True worship requires sacrifice. True worship requires a preparation of our hearts. True worship requires the deep cutting of God into our flesh, requires a woundedness, requires a brokenness of us. When our flesh is cut and when our hearts bleed, when we are offered on the altar over God's fire, then what is the fragrance that our lives produce in that moment? What is the fragrance of our lives? What kind of smoke rises from us? Is it sweet? Is it pure? And is it holy? I have been captivated for a couple of weeks on this as God has been really speaking into the depths of my heart, my own life. Can I, like Abraham... Can I climb a Mount Moriah to offer up my beloved Isaac, to sacrifice him there and call it worship? Can I do that? Do we understand what loving worship is? Or can I be like David, who had fasted for a week for this baby to live and not die? But after he learns that the child is dead and he has fasted and he has prayed and he gets the news that contrary to his prayer, the child has died. Can we, like David, work through that situation, rise up, wash ourselves, anoint ourselves, go into the temple, and the first thing we do is worship? I can't imagine Job hearing in one day, all ten of your children are dead. I can't imagine the grief, but I read this in my Bible, that through his grief, it says he worshipped and he gave glory to God. Do we understand what loving worship is? Or in the New Testament, do we understand the value of that alabaster box? You know what the financial worth of that thing was? It is an entire life's savings. You have worked your entire adult life for that nest egg. For that is your entire life's savings. And in one act of worship, you break it open and you waste its fragrance upon Jesus. Never to get it back. Once it's poured out, you're not getting it back. Do we understand what loving worship is? True worship cuts really deep into us. It's like extracting the ingredients from wounded bark. I have heard so many discussions about music styles and worship styles and tradition versus modern versus modern instruments versus old instruments. And I think people on both sides of the issue miss the point altogether. Worship is never a matter of performance. It's not a matter of ability. 
It's not a matter of musical style or musical taste. It is the release of a grateful and a broken spirit before God. And I don't care what style it is. It is the release of a grateful and a broken spirit before God. David said it in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God of a contrite spirit, a broken heart, O God, you would not despise. That's what worship is. As you read through the book of Exodus, in the read about the construction of the whole tabernacle, for the observant person, something's very noticeable. Unlike the other pieces of furniture, you never heard of this golden altar incense until after the priests were consecrated. You heard about everything else before that, but you only heard about this golden altar of incense after the priests were consecrated. What that powerfully suggests is that all the other duties of the priest, what he did at the brazen altar, what he did at the laver, what he did at the lampstand, what he did at the table showbread, all of it really is leading to the real goal. And that real goal is ministering to the Lord. Sometimes we are so busy ministering to people or ministering to the house or ministering to an agenda. But, but the whole point is, our, all the ministry is to be ministering to the Lord. That's it. Everything has got to lead to that conclusion. It's all ministry to the Lord. In other words, every kind and each and every kind of ministry must be done as an act of worship to the Lord. That's the real goal of all ministry is to minister to the Lord. There is never a time when worship is not to be offered. When that priest went in to deal with the lampstand, because every morning and every evening they had to trim the wicks, but in the morning when that priest went in to attend to the lampstand, before he attended to the lampstand, you know what he had to do? He had to put incense on the altar. And in the evening, after he trims the lampstand for the last time that day, you know what the last thing he does at night is? He has to put incense on that altar. When they did the showbread, you know what they had to do first? Put incense on the altar. In other words, every kind of ministry is supposed to be done as an act of worship to the Lord. And if it doesn't flow out of gratitude, if it flows out of duty, it's not acceptable. If it flows out, well, somebody's got to do it to fill a hole, it's not acceptable. Oh, we need somebody to do this, they're just going to fill a slot, it's not acceptable. God doesn't receive it. Everything we do has to be an expression of a grateful, worshiping heart to God. And if it isn't coming out of that motivation is not acceptable. Powerful stuff that's taught here. Everything we do must be gratitude and a response of worship. Everything. In Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus lived his whole life as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Philippians chapter 4, 18, uh, an offering that they took up to give to Paul the Apostle um, and you know what? It says that that offering was a, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Everything was done in gratitude and worship to the Lord. Now, here's a question. What about the people on the outside who are never allowed into the holy place? How are they ever going to experience that presence of the Lord? Well, the answer is simple enough. Listen to this. When the priest offers incense on that fire, and that fragrance is produced, and that cloud is produced, it gets into their hair, it gets into their skin, and it gets into their clothes. Have you ever smelt anybody who's been close to a fire? And the smoke, you can smell it on that person. When you are in worship... And there's the atmosphere of God in the air. And the presence of the Lord is in the air. Folks, it gets into you. 
It gets into your heart, gets into your soul, gets into your mind, gets into your hair, gets into your skin, gets into your clothes, so to speak. It gets into you. And what happens is that when you then go out to the public who weren't there in that worship service, you carry the fragrance of God with you. You carry the presence of God with you. And your very presence makes people say... Something different here. There's something going on here. What, what do I smell? What is that? And that's how the world out there is going to experience the presence of God because they got to smell it on you. And there's only one way to get that smell on you. Pay the price. Do the hard work and the sacrifice and spend much, much much, much, much time in worship. Because that's the goal of all ministry, is to minister to the Lord. And it gets on you, and you take it out to the public. And here's the question, how is this world going to know Jesus if they can't smell His presence on you? I don't apologize for a lot of worship. Don't apologize for being aggressive in worship. I really don't. Because that's the goal of all ministry, is to bless the Lord. You know, if you teach Sunday school, the purpose of it is worship, to bless the Lord. If you greet at the door, the purpose of it is gratitude, and you're blessing and you're worshiping the Lord. No matter what you do, it's worship to the Lord. That's how they're going to experience the presence of God. But here's another interesting thing, another important aspect. The fire to burn that incense. You know where it comes from? The fire to burn that incense. Where does it come from? Remember the brazen altar out in the courtyard? You have to get a live coal from there and put it in the golden altar of incense. Not just any fire is allowed to burn that stuff. Now listen to this carefully. Do you know how that fire was lit in the first place? Do you know the origin of that fire? Leviticus 9, 23 and 24 tells you how that fire was lit. As they made their sacrifice to the Lord, the Bible says, and the fire fell from heaven and God lit the altar did you catch that and God lit the altar God did the lighting but then it was up to the people to never let the fire go out that fire was to be perpetual it was to be kept alive and no substitute was ever allowed if you offer strange fire as two of Aaron's sons did you die no strange fire is permitted. Now, forgive me, but I'm Pentecostal. No substitute for Pentecost. You can't do without the fire. Come on. You can't do without the fire. You can't get past the brazen altar without the fire of God. You can't do any kind of ministry without the fire of God. God lights the fire, but we have to keep it going. And to worship God, you have to keep that fire alive. Don't let it go out. That means you're going to have to give the sacrifice of praise. You're going to have to immerse yourself in Bible study, meditation, obedience, faithfulness, and service forever. But God lights the fire, and we have to ensure it never goes out. And no other fire can be used to burn the incense. How many want the fire to fall? We want the fire to fall. Just like the Lord lit the fire at the brazen altar. For the sake of the lost church, we want the fire to fall. Just like in Elijah, contesting the powers of Baal. We want the fire to fall to demonstrate to a lost and a dying world that the Lord, He is God, nobody else is. And that's proved by the fire falling. We want the fire to fall. When Solomon dedicated the temple that he built, 
Guess what happened? The fire fell again. It fell so much that there was such a cloud of the presence of God that we're told that the presence of God was so thick that even the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the presence of God as it burned on the fire that God gave it. How many want the fire to fall? True worship is only possible because God lights the fire. But I want you to catch this. True worship come in the same way, will cause the fire to fall again. Do we want the fire to fall? Do we want the fire to fall? It's worship. True worship on God's altar with the incense that He tells us to bring will bring the fire. This is illustrated in a scene from the life of King David in his later years. You can read this in 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21. David was an anointed king and he had much success. But David allowed himself to get proud. He orders a census to determine the size of his army. Instead of looking to the Lord, he wants to know his own strength. It seemed as if David wanted to be ruler over Israel by his own right not as a dependent on the Lord. In other words, in his success, he had forgotten that he is subordinate to the Lord. One of the dangers of being successful in God. David's vanity cost the nation immensely. His sin could not be winked at. A plague is loosed on the land. Read it. 70,000 people perish in unimaginable grief. And God restrains himself, ordering that destroying angel to stop the slaughter as he reaches the threshing floor of a man named Ornan. David had witnessed the anguish of the suffering people, knowing it was his fault. He cries out to God, Stop it. I'm the one to blame. I'm the one who should suffer. Now listen to this. God heard the anguished heart of a repentant David. And he told the angel to stop right at that threshing floor of Ornan. He told David, build an altar, make an offering at that very spot. That's where I want that altar to be built, at that very spot. And David goes to this man, Ornan, and he says, let me buy this threshing floor at full price, that this plague might be stopped. But Ornan, who had seen that destroying of angel, and knowing that it stopped right at his door, he says, tell you what, David, you can have it. (laughs) Knowing that he barely escaped with his life, offers to give it to the king, offers the oxen for the slaughter, offers the implements for the wood, and even offers the wheat for the grain offering. And David was offered an excellent opportunity to offer sacrifices to God without any cost to himself. It would have been cheap, and yet, and it would fulfill all that God asked him to do. But here's the question. Would it have been worship? Would it have been worship? David would not take it for free. He could have done it. And his legal obligations would have been met. But real worship must proceed out of the life of the worshiper. He makes this famous statement, I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. And here's the question, is it sacrifice that God wants or is it the sacrificer? What is God after? Is it sacrifice that he wants or is it the sacrificer? Worship is never a matter of performance. Worship is never a matter of simply I can play an instrument or I can give in the offering. A lot of people's lives are busy with threshing. They're busy making a living. But to take time out to worship the Lord is inconvenient. If he would have accepted Ornan's offer, the fact is it would have been Ornan's sacrifice and not David's. And David knew that this would demean the greatness of God, and it would have been a demonstration of a poor spirit in David. So do we just attend worship services, or do we pay the price to be a worshiper? Real worship costs feeling. It costs us in terms of our thought. 
It, cause, it costs us in terms of involvement. It costs us in terms of prayer. Do we look for the greatest results at the least expense, or is the expenditure itself an act of worship? I've learned this. God doesn't want my opinion. He doesn't want my intentions. He doesn't want my ideas, and he certainly doesn't need my money. What God does want is me. Amen? What he wants is me. So at this threshing floor, David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. In other words, he consecrated himself, spirit, soul, and body, in full repentance to the Lord. Now, according to the record in First Chronicles 21, guess what happened when he did that? Guess what happened? The fire fell again. The fire fell again. Judgment on the land gave way to mercy. Why? Because somebody sacrificed costly worship to the Lord, and those who were perishing no longer perished, but they were saved because he worshipped. I like that. They were saved because somebody paid the price of worship. We're crying out for revival. We're crying out for the kingdom of God to be manifest. We're crying out for people to to be saved. We're crying out for the power of God to heal bodies and drive demons out. Let me tell you, church, it's going to come if we offer true worship to the Lord. The fire falls when those conditions are met. As a matter of fact, the experience was so sacred that Ordon's threshing floor became designated to be the very site where the temple would be built. God's saying, that's where I'm going to build my house. Right there. That's where I'm going to have this temple built. When there's repentance is genuine, and when there is brokenness before God, the fire falls. When Solomon extravagantly worshipped the Lord and made dedication to him in that very spot, again, when he dedicated that temple, the fire fell again. In other words, when God finds those kind, that kind of worship, the fire falls. Amen. The fire falls. That's the spirit that God looks for in worshipers. This is where God chooses to dwell, to make himself known. To worship in spirit and truth is a costly thing. You know what often ruins a worship service? Empty hearts. Prayerless saints. Tired bodies. Undisciplined minds. Unopened Bibles. Careless attitudes. In other words, we're all our greatest enemy when we try to worship without paying the full price. Ask the question, do we want to see the fire of God fall in this church? Do we want to see the fire of God fall in this city? If we do, then we cannot come before God empty-handed. But we have to offer Him the totality of our lives, our spirit, our soul, our body. How can we do anything less after He's given us the totality of His Son? We're to come with the incense that He has prescribed and no other way. Because this brings the presence of God. This brings the power of God. So Lord, let the fire fall so that the fragrance of our brokenness over God's fire is released for the sake of this generation. Lord, let your fire fall.